You know, this Easter Sunday so often can be a day where for some of us, uh, we go to church more out of obligation. Uh, we go to church because it seems like the thing to do. We go to church because, well, that's what good people do on Easter Sunday. And yet, when we come to the Scriptures, we find that it's not so much about our goodness. We find that the Scriptures tell us about what it is Christ has done on our behalf. But you, you find out where someone truly lies on these things when you think about especially that the end of their life oftentimes their obituary their their tombstones there'll be one final remark there that kind of puts a summation on their life and you tend to find out what it is they truly believe and and what they think is going to happen next uh, sometimes they're humorous i mentioned funerals i go to a lot of funerals i preach a lot of funerals often when i am at them, I'll look around at headstones, and you can learn a lot about people. As I said, you can find some rather humorous ones. One that I saw recently that I thought uh, was a good statement and a funny one simply said this, I told you I was sick. Um, they, they made sure they got the last word in on that one. Uh, others will take jabs. Uh, others will just kind of say little comments. But, but most of the tombstones that I've seen and that you've seen, they'll usually say something good about a person. Most of the obituaries you read and I read, they'll, they'll talk about people's accomplishments. Uh, usually they don't just give a summary of their life, the good and the bad. They usually say, well, this is the world's best mother, world's greatest father, beloved brother, beloved sister. It's, it's kind of one final attempt to say, this person did some good things. When we read between the lines on those things, though, we find that oftentimes it's another attempt on behalf of us trying to say to an almighty God, well, we deserve something. We deserve to be with you in heaven. Our, our goods outweighed our bad. And yet that's not what we see the Scripture teaches, especially in this passage this morning. And so we're going to look to that issue as we look on Jesus' teaching on forgiveness. As we do, the first point I want to make from this text is this, that as much as we may want to think it, the Scripture doesn't teach that good people go to heaven. In fact, it says that good people don't go to heaven. And what I mean by that is that our Going to heaven doesn't have anything to do with our goodness. Our going to heaven has to do with Christ, with what Christ has done. And that's what you see in this passage. Peter comes to Jesus and he asks him a question about forgiveness. And notice what he asks. He says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Uh, Peter, in asking this question again, it naturally flows from what's just taken place. Jesus has been teaching about going to a brother and forgiving him. And so Peter essentially is coming and saying, well, how many times do I need to do that? You see, a common teaching in Peter's day was from the rabbis and religious leaders about forgiveness. And that teaching was this. If someone sinned against you, you needed to forgive them. If they sinned against you a second time, you needed to forgive them. If they sinned against you a third time, you needed to forgive them. But what the rabbis in Jesus' day taught was that if someone sinned against you a fourth time, you didn't need to forgive them anymore. They put a quantifier on forgiveness. And so you needed to forgive, but only so much. And that's what the rabbis taught. That's what many of us still believe. You think about your own life. 
You think about maybe some strained relationships in your life. You think about some situations where, where you're no longer friends with someone or you no longer speak with someone. Oftentimes it's because perhaps something happened and you forgave them or they forgave you, but then things kept happening and they got to a point where one or both of you said, well, I'm not forgiving anymore. I'm just moving away from this. And that's the essence of the question here. And so when Peter comes to Jesus, he's thinking about these things, and he says, how often do I need to forgive? Seven times? Now by saying that, Peter is essentially understanding that the Pharisees and religious leaders in this day, the rabbis had it wrong, that, that, that certainly we needed to forgive more than three times. Seven is a number we see in Scripture, often points towards perfection. And so here Peter basically, I think, is saying, I know I need to go over and beyond what they're teaching, so should I forgive seven times? Well, notice how Jesus responds to him. Jesus does not respond to him like you and I might think that he would. Think about our conversations. Jesus does not say to Peter, well, it depends on how sorry they are. Jesus does not say to Peter, well, it depends on if they've really repented or not. Jesus does not say to Peter, well, based on their actions, you should do this. No, Jesus says to Peter, no, I I don't tell you seven times. I tell you 70 times seven times, or some of your translations may say 77 times. Why does Jesus say it this way? Is Jesus putting a quantifier on forgiveness? Is Jesus saying to Peter, well, no, seven's not quite enough. I mean, you're going to have some difficult relationships in your life. You're going to come across some Leroy Lewis's. You're going, to need, you're going to need more than seven times to forgive them. So is Jesus saying you might need to forgive them 77 times but not the 78th or 500 times but not the 501st? No, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus, when he says this, he's not putting a quantifier on forgiveness. He's basically saying you and I need to stand ready to forgive someone in the same way that God the Father has forgiven us an unlimited amount of times. In fact, what Jesus does by using the number he uses, he calls to attention something that happened in Genesis, something the disciples and, and other people of their day would have recalled very easily. See, in Genesis chapter 4, you know, first three chapters of Genesis, God creates man, man sins and rebels, the fall takes place, then you have Adam and Eve, they start to have children, they've been told to be fruitful and multiply, as they're doing that we see uh, the consequences of sin and corruption and death in their children, Cain and Abel, we know that Cain kills his brother Abel and as part of the curse for Cain, God says to him, you're going to wander the earth, and Cain responds back to God, well people, somebody's going to kill me. They're going to know who I am, because God says he's going to mark him, and they're going to take my life. And God says this to Cain. He says, if anyone does that, then my vengeance on them will be seven times. Well, a few verses later, you see the lineage of Cain. And you see through that lineage, there's a man named Lamech. And Lamech, in just those few verses, makes a very interesting statement. Lamech basically shares with his wives that he has killed someone as well. But unlike his forefather Cain, he has killed someone he sees as a righteous killing. Someone has attacked him, someone has wounded him, he in return retaliates, and they end up dying. And Lamech makes this statement. He says, if Cain's vengeance was seven times, then Lamech's will be seven times seventy, or seventy-seven times. 
what is he saying? He's saying that Cain, who was unrighteous and wrong in killing his brother Abel, God said, even of Cain, I will take vengeance on anyone that harms him. Well, I haven't done anything wrong. And so if someone harms me, the vengeance will be unlimited. Jesus goes all the way back to the Old Testament to pull up this teaching, this saying, this thought on unlimited vengeance to make a statement about unlimited forgiveness. So you and I don't need to be taught about vengeance this morning. I don't need to sit down with you and go through a workbook on if someone wrongs you, here's how you can get them back. That's where our heart naturally goes. That's where our mind naturally drifts. I have been wronged. I'm going to retaliate. See, each of us are just like Lamech. And yet Jesus here is calling us to something different. Jesus here is calling us not to have the mind of Peter, not to have the mind of man that focuses on our abilities, our goodness. He's calling us to something altogether radical. He's calling us to forgive as we have been forgiven. See, the only way you and I when we take our final breath, that we're going to cross over into eternity and spend that eternity in heaven with God, it's not going to be because we were good people. It's going to be because we were redeemed people. And that's what Jesus goes on to teach in this parable. And that's the next point that I've put there in your notes, that it is not good people, but it is redeemed people who go to heaven. Notice the story that Jesus now tells to make a point, as often he does. He talks about a kingdom. He compares the kingdom of heaven to an earthly kingdom. And on this earthly kingdom, he tells a story. He says, imagine there's a king. And that king has called in his servants to settle their accounts. In Jesus' day, many people were indebted to the king. Oftentimes, kings became kings because they overthrew a kingdom, they took power, and they taxed the people. And automatically, in that moment, everyone was indebted to them. Other times, kings, because of the great fortunes they had, people were indebted because they borrowed from those kings. We don't know what the situation here is, but essentially, as he's settling these accounts, we know that there's a servant who owes him an outstanding amount of money. The Scripture tells us in verse 24, this man owes 10,000 talents. That means absolutely nothing to most of us this morning. Uh, We don't know how much a talent is. You probably didn't go to the car dealership yesterday and bargain over how many talents you were going to pay for a new truck. Uh, We think in dollars in our currency. So let me help you unpack this a little bit. In Jesus' day, people weren't paid as we are so often. We get paid a salary or an hourly wage. Uh, For laborers, for servants, they would have been paid a daily wage. And it was a fairly common daily wage. In this case, it was usually a denarii. That was a a day's wage. So when you see denarii in the Scriptures, it's referring to a day's wage. Well, a talent was the largest calculation of currency during the days of Christ. A talent was worth about 6,000 days' wages, about 6,000 denarii. So you start to unpack this a little bit. It would take someone 20 years of work to earn one talent. And so imagine how much they would have after a lifetime of work. They're like Leland Parks. He's going to work 90 years. Three talents. That's not even close to the 10000 this guy owes. Let me put it to you this way. I tried to figure out with a calculator, dollars and cents, how much, how much dollars in our economy today are we talking? Okay, Are you ready for this? 
10,000 talents in our economy today would be a bazillion dollars. That's about as accurate as I could get. It's it's a number that's outrageous. It's a number that you can't even calculate. So Jesus is telling a story to make a point, but in making this point, this seems a little bit odd. He's saying a man owes a king an amount that how could he ever owe the king that amount? I mean, how could he ever have been indebted that amount? And how could he ever pay this man back? In fact, the king, when he brings the man before him and the man doesn't have the money to pay, he he talks about enslaving his family and him until they make payment. Well, we know historically that that the price for a slave during this time was, was minuscule compared to what this man owed. So if he sold himself and his family into slavery, that wouldn't have paid his debt. What is Jesus trying to teach us here? Jesus is telling a story about a king and a servant who owes that king a debt that he can never repay on his own. The only way that debt can be repaid is if the king forgives the debt. Romans 3.23 says that every one of us in this room are born with a sin debt. It says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't talk about how much sin you've committed or I've committed because that's not the point. See, we may think of ourselves as better than the person next to us, but the reality in the Scripture is we're all sinners. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of that sin is death. It's an eternal separation from God. What God's Word is saying is that we owe a debt that we can never repay. What Jesus is saying in this statement is there's a servant who owes a debt who he can never repay that debt to the king. Do you see the connection there? The only way for that debt to be paid is what? For the king to forgive the debt. The only way for you and I to pay the debt we owe is for someone to pay it who can pay it without limit. And the only one who can do that is one who is man, perfect, and one who is God. And that is Jesus Christ. And that is why on Easter Sunday morning we celebrate the resurrection. Friends, we don't celebrate the resurrection because it was some divine way of God sending us a Hallmark card to tell us He loved us. We don't celebrate the resurrection because, well, the greatest sacrifice you can offer is your life and Jesus did that and we need to lay down our lives for others. No, we celebrate the resurrection because through the cross our debt has been forgiven. We are the servant. We owe the king. And you and I can either either indebt ourselves into prison seeking to pay a debt we can never pay, or we can accept the payment that Jesus offered for us on the cross. That's the point of this story. That's the point Jesus is making here. And that is why we see that it is only people who have been redeemed that will spend eternity with Christ in heaven. But that's not the only thing that Jesus teaches us here because the story doesn't end there. And as we move forward, the last point I put in your notes is this that redeemed people are forgiven, but they're also forgiving people. Notice what takes place here. This servant is forgiven his debt. You would think that he would be overjoyed that he has been forgiven a debt he can never pay back and that he would go out and do the same for others. Is that what he does? No. Notice what happens. He goes out, makes it clear in verse 28, that same servant, 
and he finds his fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii. Now I've already explained what that is. That's a day's wage, a hundred of those. So you know, several thousand dollars is what this guy owes in our economy today. Now you know that's an issue. Nick owes me several thousand dollars. I'm going to want my several thousand dollars. But when I come out of a conversation going in to talk with Nick, and every debt I've ever owed has been forgiven to the extreme nature that we see this, then what should my heart be towards him? Well, I can forgive his debt as well. Why? Because I've been forgiven so much more. And yet, what do we see from this servant? This servant goes out. He finds someone who owes him the equivalent of several thousand dollars. He begins to beat him. He begins to assault him. He begins to demand in that moment he be repaid. Well, what does that man do? That man does the exact same thing that this servant did with the king. He says he can't pay, and he pleads for forgiveness. But notice the difference. The king forgives the man who owes the unpayable debt. The man who was forgiven... The man who was released from his debt, he doesn't forgive. And so what happens? Well, the king hears about it. The king calls that man back in. And the king basically says to him, verse 33, You should have given mercy because I gave you mercy. Because you didn't react in the same way, he then puts the debt back on him and he puts him into prison. And then Jesus says this to us and pulls it all together. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So what is Jesus saying here to us this morning, this Easter day at Bloomfield Baptist Church? He's saying this. Friends, it is very easy for us to come in and to sing about forgiveness and to accept forgiveness and to celebrate forgiveness and then walk out of these doors and not forgive others. And it's even more easy to be forgiven. Imagine every sin you ever have committed, every sin you ever will committed, you can't even add that up on a piece of paper. And God's forgiven all of it. And then to take one little insignificant thing when you compare it to all the rest that someone's done to you, and you won't let go of it. And Jesus is saying to you and I this morning, if you won't let go of that, there's a problem. The problem is either you don't understand forgiveness because you've never received it. In other words, as much as you may have heard the preacher preach and you've been to church all your life, maybe you've never had that point of conversion when you truly came to understand that you need to repent and turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ, and be born new and again and receive that forgiveness. If you've never done that, if you've never experienced that, then you're not going to know how to show forgiveness to others. But there can also be the case, and I think Jesus is saying this here as well, where we receive forgiveness, but we just don't think about it with others. We, We revert to our flesh. We revert to our natural, carnal impulses. And when it comes to forgiveness, we just don't forgive people. Because we don't sit down and think about the fact of how much we've been forgiven. And so when Peter comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, do I need to forgive him seven times? That's exactly what we do. We think about forgiveness as something we quantify. So you go to the pastor and you say, this person has done this to me, and they've done this to me, and they've done this to me, and I've forgiven them, and I've forgiven them, I've forgiven them, but I'm just at the end of my rope. What do I do? 
We think of forgiveness that way. And yet Jesus calls us to something radically, radically different here. He says we need to forgive others like he's forgiven us. He says one of the marks of the true church is you have a people who are willing to forgive others in the way they've been forgiven. And so what this looks like on our level this morning is, husbands, you need to forgive your wife. Wives, you need to forgive your husbands. Parents, you need to forgive your children. Children, you need to forgive your parents. Brothers, sisters, cousins, nieces, nephews, friends, whatever the connection is, whatever the relationship is, before you harbor bitterness and withhold forgiveness, consider the cross of Jesus Christ, where He bore all of our sin and He withheld nothing. He did not go to that cross and say, I will die for Richard Carwell's sin as long as it's under a thousand sins. I crossed a thousand by the age of two probably. And you did too. He got on that cross and he died for it all. And he calls us to forgive in the same way. And so I think the challenge for me, the challenge for you this Easter morning, as we come and worship, as we sing about an empty tomb, is a challenge to consider. Are you harboring bitterness towards someone? Are you withholding forgiveness from someone? And if you are, then repent of it today. This Easter Sunday, 2012, be done with it. Leave it behind. Because Christ endured death for everything we've done. You can forgive those one or two things you're holding on to. The message to us this Easter morning is, if you've gone through the motions and you've been in church every Easter of your life and you've heard everything there is to hear about an empty tomb and yet you've never responded in repentance and faith, you've never surrendered it all and laid it down, you've never repented, the Scripture says repentance is you're moving in sin, you stop, you turn around, and you go the other way towards a holy God. If you've never done that and confessed Christ as your Savior, then this Easter 2012, Let this be the day where you do that. I want to encourage you to do whatever it is God is leading you now as we move into a time of invitation this morning. If you'll go ahead and stand with us. And as you stand, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to offer a time of response. If you will, pray with me. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. And Lord, we thank you for what your word says about forgiveness. And Lord, even as I've read this text many times in recent weeks, I've been reminded of how easy it is for me not to forgive how our natural inclination so often is to withhold forgiveness to demand vengeance to try to make people suffer for what they do and yet lord you did none of that with us father as we read this story this morning i hope that you've reminded each of us that we're not some innocent servant on the sidelines lord we are the indebted servant we are the one who's been forgiven a debt that can't be calculated. And so, Lord, who are we then to go out and withhold forgiveness from another? Lord, I pray for any here this morning who is struggling in this area, Lord, who is struggling to forgive something, probably uh, perhaps something from long ago in their past, perhaps something from today. Whatever it is, Lord, I pray that You would show them Your Word through Your Spirit that As believers, we need to forgive as we've been forgiven. And we pray that we would do these things in Christ's name now.
Lord, I pray for any you're drawing to a point of decision today, for any who might be coming to join this church, anyone who might be coming to confess Christ as their Savior, anyone who might be coming just for prayer this morning, anyone who right there where they're standing may need to just stop now and repent and pray to you. Whoever it is you might be calling, Lord, I pray that you would empower them to make those decisions. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.